I'd like you to turn to the book of Luke tonight. I mentioned this morning that I was feeling led to preach a message that I don't like to preach. And uh, for a number of reasons, and I think you'll get that as I go through it. Uh, obviously, when I say Luke chapter 16, immediately you probably thought of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, that's exactly where I'm going tonight. And uh, you say, do you think there'll be a lot of lost people here tonight? And that's not the point. I'm, I'm preaching this to the saved tonight. But preacher, we don't have to worry about going to hell. That's true, but there are billions of people out there that do. And I want us to think tonight about the reality of hell. And hopefully we can draw it down to what that really means. The reality of hell. So we'll begin reading at verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, Father, I plead tonight for the filling of the Holy Spirit. I pray, dear God, that you would impress upon our hearts the reality of hell and what that means for our loved ones without Christ, our neighbors without Christ. God, deal with our hearts tonight that missions... You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But Lord, millions are perishing, and it's our job to give them the precious gospel of Christ. So deal with us tonight, we pray, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This is not going to be an exposition of the passage. I have no doubt that you have heard that before. I, I just want, I want to get you to think. I want to get you to think about what it really means that people that die without Jesus Christ as their Savior, what they go to, and it is forever. I read a story about a couple of Christians that were talking a little loudly about what they believed. 
uh, about how strongly that they believed the scriptures, they believed the Bible. And there was a lost man that came by and he uh, said to him, he said, you people don't believe your Bible. They said, well, sure we do. We're Christians. We believe the word of God. We believe all of it. And he said, no, you don't believe it. He said, if you believed everything that Bible said about hell, you'd be doing everything you could to keep people from going there. Now, truth is, I get kind of tired about doing some things. We've been running buses. Matter of fact, every church I've been in, we've run buses. And we go down to the projects and we pick up young people. Man, those buses cost us an awful lot of money. Doesn't just cost us to buy the bus. Matter of fact, we just had one of our buses painted. It cost us $5,500 just to have the bus painted. Of course, gas now has been up to $4 a gallon. That's extremely expensive. Plus, every bus has got a few demons in it, and I'm not talking about the riders of the bus, uh, to where they're going to break down a number of times. I mean, it literally costs us thousands of dollars. Then you've got the insurance that you have to pay for. Then on top of that, it takes an awful lot of workers to go out there a few hours every Saturday to knock on those doors and convince those kids that they need to come back tomorrow and then find new riders that are going to do it. And um, a matter of fact, we had one boy. Now what we do is, especially the ones we drive down to Huntsville to get and the projects down there, uh, when we get them there, we try to keep them basically under control in a particular part of the building. Uh, we've got, you know, one part of the building where there are restrooms for them to use that are fine and not mixed with the general population. I know that terminology makes me sound like a Rock of Ages preacher. Uh, but with the general population that are there. Uh, but it, one Sunday, one Sunday, we had one of our boys got loose. And he uh, found his way up to the bathroom that's right beside the foyer where people come into the church. And he walked in there and he, he looked through the crack there in the, one of the stalls and he said, You stinking it up in there, aren't you, buddy? <laughs> he was a visitor. And you think, Oh, no. You say, Preacher, with all that trouble, why on earth do you keep running buses? Because I believe there's a hell. That's why we keep running buses. I get concerned about sending out so many missionary families. You realize having 28 missionary families out of our church, uh, those are our best people. Man, those are soul winners. Those are people that are in the book. They're, they're people who've uh, been involved in, in ministries. And then on top of that, since we support our missionaries, I'm not, we support a whole bunch more missionaries besides the 28 that are out of our church. Uh, but for those that are out of our church, we support them for 25% of their monthly support. So I imagine it comes to somewhere around $50,000 a month just to support them, not counting the other missionaries that we do. Uh, I've got some people I wish God would call, but he doesn't ever seem to call them. He always calls, you know, some of your very best people. And, uh, and that's all right. And you say, well, why do you send out? And we have missions conference, man. It's a big deal. We send our people out there. And we realize that we are the missionaries to Madison and Huntsville and Athens and Decatur, that we are the missionaries that are responsible for that area. He said, why do you keep sending out missionaries? And the reality is because we believe that there is a hell. I mean, we do an awful lot to try to get lost people saved. We have special promotions from time to time, of course, visitation, advertising. Um, it's not about just gathering around the, world, uh, the word. It is about reaching the lost. We don't just study the Bible so we can flaunt our Bible knowledge. 
but it's so we can grow and be more effective in our witness bringing the lost to Jesus Christ. I know I've already said this, but growing up in Sturgis, Michigan, I do not remember ever, ever, a Baptist, Nazarene, Bible church person ever coming to our door to tell us about Jesus or even, for that matter, to invite us to the house of God. I was brought up lost. My mom and dad were factory workers. Uh, they, um, man, they were drinkers, cussers, all of that. Bless their hearts. By the way, I was able to win my mom to Christ. She came to hear me preach the third time I ever preached. And uh, what a blessing when the service is over. I got to lead her to Christ. Never did get to lead my dad to Christ, though. I died without the Savior. The question comes, do you believe that there's a hell? And what does the reality of that hell, what does that mean to you? I mean, we look at pictures of people around the world, and I'll tell you what, I look at a lot of those faces, and it's not just the little kids. And they break my heart. It's amazing how many of these places that God's called many people to, and then they never go. I wish everybody that surrendered to the mission field went to the mission field. They don't. As a matter of fact, it's only a small percentage that ever go and and serve the whole first term, yet alone going back for a second term. Well, whether you believe about hell, what the Bible says or not, it's still true. Matter of fact, there are a number of things that the Bible says about hell. In the passage that we read, Jesus is the one who's talking. In verse 23, he calls it a place of torment. In verse 24, hell is a place where people scream for mercy. Hell is a place of tormenting flame in verse 24. And it's a place where people scream for one drop of water and they never get their prayer answered. In verse 26, hell is a place of no escape and of no rescue. Once they're in hell, you are wasting your time praying for them. Your prayers are not going to make hell one degree cooler. Once they are there, they are there for good. Not only that, in verse 27, it's a place where people have no rest. It is a place where people pray, but they never get their request answered. And it is a place where those who are there do not want their loved ones to come. In the gospel accounts, Jesus said a number of other things about hell. In Matthew 13, 42, he declared that it was a place where people wail. In Matthew 8, 12, it is a place of weeping. In Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42, it is a furnace of fire. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30, hell is a place of outer darkness. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 32, it is a place where they can never repent. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, hell is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. According to Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 48, Hell is a place where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. It continues to burn. Now, all of those truths that I just gave you are things spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But there are other Bible truths about hell. For instance, in Revelation 20, 14, it is a lake of fire. In Revelation 20 and verse 1, hell is a bottomless pit. In Psalm 11 and verse 6, hell is a horrible tempest. In Isaiah 33 and verse 14, it is described as a devouring fire. In Psalm 18 and verse 5, hell is a place of sorrows 
of course. In Revelation 22, 10 and 11, it is a place of filthiness. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, hell is a place of everlasting destructions. In Jude 13, it is a place of blackness and darkness forever. In Revelation 21, 8, it is a place where there are liars, adulterers, whoremongers, murderers, thieves, and drunkards. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 11, hell is a place where they are tormented with brimstone, uh, brimstone and it is a place where they have no rest, day nor night, forever. When you hear of a lost person dying, he has not ceased to exist. He may be out of our sight, but he is burning, pardon me, burning in hell. While you think about it, no, it doesn't make any difference how good of a person they may have seemed as far as being compared to other people. If they died and went to hell, they are still there, no matter how many years after. And they continue to suffer the torments of the damned. <clears throat> In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10, this is amazing. It is a place where they drink the wine of the wrath of God. Now you can look back in history and there are a number of books that have been written back when, when people weren't so doped up when they died. And testimonies of the saved and of the unsaved. I read about Sir Francis Newport. He was head of the English Infidel Club. And he said this. He said, you need not tell me there is no hell. For I know there is one and that I am in his angry presence. You need not tell me there is no hell, for I already feel my soul slipping into its fires. Wretches, cease your idle talk about there being hope for me. I know I am lost forever. The skeptic J.H. Huxley, his housekeeper said that as he lay dying, the skeptic suddenly looked up at some sight invisible to mortal eyes and after staring a while, whispered in horror, so it is true. The atheist Voltaire cried out, I am abandoned by God and man. He said to the doctor, he said, I'll give you half of what I'm worth if you'll give me six months of life. The doctor said, you'll not live six weeks. And Voltaire then said, so then I will go to hell. His agonies were so great, even his atheist friends would not come around and visit him in his last days. And his nurse said, for all the money of Europe, I would never watch another atheist die. There is that book, The Dying Testimonies of the Saved and the Unsaved. And in that book, I read the story about a young man in Georgia warned by parents and others to turn from his wickedness and from his gambling and profanity, and he wouldn't do it. He took seriously ill, and he would exclaim, Oh, drive these devils away from, from me with their chains. They'll drag my soul down to hell before I die. And then he cried to his siblings, Oh, brother and sister, take warning. Don't come to this hell. The devils are dragging me down. And as he cried mightily, don't come to this hell of woe. This is hell. This is hell. And his soul departed into everlasting ruin and perdition. But now, 
Those testimonies aren't Bible. They do go along with the horrors of what the scripture says about hell. But just with the truths that God gives us in the word of God about hell, that ought to be enough for us. Now think about it for just a moment. I gave you some truths given by Jesus and then some other truths in the Bible about hell. But think about this. If hell is what God says it is in the scripture, and it is, then it's true about who's going there. Jesus said, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. He said in John 3, 36, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, he declares, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. In Revelation 21.8, But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and idolaters and sorcerers and all liars shall have their part which burneth in the lake of fire. You see, it's not only true about who's going there, but what the scripture says about the only escape is true as well. When Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now I want you to get this. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the only escape. Live as good as you can live. But die without Jesus and you burn in hell for eternity. Peter preaching in Acts 4.12 declared, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, now get this, whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Scripture says in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, and yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die, but God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Turn over to Acts chapter 17 just a moment. I know I've quoted a lot of verses to you. And I could quote these as well, but there are times I think we just need to turn to it and look at what it says. The Apostle Paul, preaching on Mars Hill, preaching about the unknown God. Listen, these people believed in God. As a matter of fact, they believed in God's. And along the along Mars Hill on the way up there, they had all kinds of statues to gods. And just in case they missed one, they had one to the unknown God. So Paul begins to preach to them and he gets near the end of the message. And he says in verse 30, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day 
in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Do you realize the fact that the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty is proof that all men must repent and all will have to stand before Jesus Christ in judgment. Now, I believe probably everybody here would say amen to everything that I've said. You say, preacher, that's what we believe. Have you thought about what that means? Let me tell you what it means to me. Because we seem to have trouble making application. My grandpa Allison, I was born in 1949, in September of that year. And my grandpa Allison, see, my grandma and grandpa had 11 children. They had seven boys and they had four girls. My dad was the youngest of the 11 children. Now, one of the boys, a boy by the name of Guy, died at two years of age. The other boys all lived to adulthood. My dad was the only son that grandma and grandpa had that had a boy. Now, the others had daughters, but I was the only boy. So you understand that I was the only Allison grandson. I mean, with the name, Allison. And you say, what did that mean? That meant I was spoiled rotten. I mean, my mom and dad. <laughs> Listen, on the weekends, they'd send me out to the farm. Because that's where my, gra my grandpa wanted me out at the farm with him. And boy, they spoiled me. I, I'll tell you, we were close. We did so much stuff together. Now, back then, that meant working on the farm, uh, dealing with the cows. As a matter of fact, my grandpa had 16 cows. And he was the milking machine. Matter of fact, that was before the milking machine. And some of you are old enough to know what that means then. So every morning, every evening, those 16 cows would come into the barnyard. And then they would be ushered into the barn where they would come in. We had eight stalls, two at a time. There would be times when my grandpa and I would get on the old Ford tractor. I would sit on his knee. He would let me drive and to work the Auga horn and uh, to call the cows we'd drive down the lane a while pretty soon we'd see them all coming up now when they came in the first cow that came in every time it was a black cow it was not a black angus cow it was just a black cow and my grandpa said mike that's your cow and so i could name it whatever i wanted and being the very creative young man that i was i named it blackie and on the weekends that I was out there, you know, they had those stainless steel buckets. Some of you remember those stainless steel buckets that they would fill up with cow's milk. Well, my grandpa bought a small stainless steel bucket. That was mine. And on the days that I was out there, my grandpa, with Blackie being the very first cow, he'd get down there to milk it. And he'd fill up that little bucket of nice, warm cow's milk just out of the cow. Now, some people think that sounds kind of icky. Man, it was delicious. How many here ever drank warm cow's milk right out of the cow? Whoo, man, I'll tell you what. And I would take that. My job was to take my little bucket and to go up to the house where they had the strainer. And so I would walk out of the barn and I would start down the path to go up to the house. And when I got to the shed, I'd go around 
to the side of the shed where Grandpa couldn't see me. I never thought about Grandma up there in the kitchen, but Grandpa couldn't see me. And then I'd take that bucket, and of course every bucket of milk always had a fly in it. Always, you push the fly aside. They didn't drink much, you just didn't want to swallow it, you know. So I'd push that fly aside. I'd drink that nice warm cow's milk, then I'd take it on up, give it to Graham, she'd run it through the strainer and all of that. Well, you know, Grandma made her own butter, and so when they would serve it and she'd ask me if I'd like some bread and butter, I'd always ask her, is that Blackie's butter? Oh, yeah, that's Blackie's butter. She'd get, <laughs> you know, I think, I think Grandma lied to me a little bit, but now that I've gotten older, but I, I didn't know any better back then, just like the milk that was in the refrigerator. I figured back then they say Blackie's milk just for me, so that's what I got to drink. And I always wondered how a you know, black cow could eat green grass and give white milk. That never made any sense either to me, but that's all right. I was just a kid. It didn't matter. Uh, it was great. But then my grandpa, we'd do special things together. I can remember he had an old Chevrolet, green Chevrolet truck. We'd drive over to Burr Oak, Michigan, where he would get feed for the cows, you know, so that they got something to do while he was milking them. And uh, then always, after going to the, the grain place, we would then go to the five and dime store. How many remember the old five and dime stores? Yeah, and we'd go in there, and Grandpa would always get me either some plastic army men or some plastic cowboys and Indians for me to play with. I mean, after all, they had a TV, but it was black and white, only got two channels. Some of you remember that too, don't you? And, uh, and by the way, the other thing he always got me I'm going to say this very carefully. It's good that you take notes in case I ever come back. He would get me Twizzler strawberry red licorice. Now, I didn't say cherry. It's amazing how many times I preach this at places, and the next day somebody brings me Twizzler cherry. Forget the cherry. It's strawberry red licorice. And it was a little different than Twizzler strawberry red licorice today in that, I mean, they were, they were nice and thick. And you could, if you, if you bit off both ends, you could blow all the way through it. You can't do that with what you get in the stores today. And I would take that Twizzler strawberry, I'm going to repeat this a few times because I don't see many notes being taken. Twizzler strawberry red licorice, and I'd take it and I'd put it in the glass of milk. That would be my straw. I'd suck that through there, man, that was good. And then when I got done, I'd eat the straw. It was delicious. I mean, boy, what memory. I still have that. Still think about that, those times together with Grandma and Grandpa. Man, I loved him. I loved my Grandpa. He was my hero. We had a relationship. Now, you may have had a great relationship with your Grandpa, and I really hope you did. And it may have been the most special thing in the world to you. I believe, though, you could never have loved your grandpa more than what I love my grandpa. You could maybe love him as much, but not more. We were close. But I want you to understand about my grandma and grandpa. My grandma and grandpa didn't know God. My dad told me one time that when he was a little boy, he had gone to a church that was out in the country, I think he had to walk a couple miles to get there. He had uh, heard the Sunday school lesson. When he came home, the family was sitting around the table. He began to talk about what he had heard. And my grandpa said, we're not going to have any blankety-blank preachers in this house. 
and forbid my dad to ever go back. And he didn't. My dad didn't have anything to do with God either. I remember in 1959, it was the end of June. My grandpa, I think, was 72 years old. It was somewhere around there, and he, uh, uh, he had emphysema real bad. Of course, he had smoked all of his life. And that was back, 1959, that was back when the doctors actually came to your house. And I remember the doctor coming out from Sturgis on Banker Street Road to the farm that my grandpa worked. And I was there, the doctor was listening to my grandpa's heart. And the doctor tried to convince my grandpa to go into the hospital and he wouldn't go. My dad decided that he would stay out that night with grandpa. And uh, I was sent back into town with my mom and my, uh, and my younger sister and my older half-brother. The next morning, we got a call that during the night, my grandpa began to cough, probably about 2 o'clock in the morning. And he couldn't get any breath in, trying to breathe, and he couldn't. He said to my dad, my dad's name is Dewey, he said, Dewey, I'll go now. So my, my dad went to the phone. And you remember Andy Griffith, where they picked up the phone, waited for Sarah to come on. That's kind of like what it was like. There wasn't anything to dial, no buttons to push. And my dad picked up the phone to try to get the operator to call the hospital to send an ambulance out for my grandpa. And he waited for 25 minutes before she finally came on. And when she came on, my grandpa was out in eternity already. Now listen to me. No matter how much I love my grandpa, no matter how special he was to me, if what the Bible says about hell is true, and it is, if what the Bible says about the only escape is true, and it is, what the Bible says about judgment after all, it says, as it is appointed unto man, once to die after this judgment is true, and it is. Then since June the 29th, 1959, my grandpa has been in hell. And for that whole time, from 1959 to today, 2023, even as I preach right now, Every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every year of every score of years. Even right now as I preach, my grandfather is in hell crying out for one drop of water to cool his tongue. And I want you to know, even at 73 years of age, if God would let me, if he would just open up hell for a moment and allow me to take a drop of water and put it on my grandpa's tongue, I'd do it, but I can't. Nobody can. That's what hell means to me. That's the reality of hell. Man, when people say, I, 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 I want to talk to a son, or I want to talk to my daughter, or I want to talk to my Uncle Jack, or, 
or whoever because they're not saved. But I'm afraid that I'll run them off. I've talked to them before. Maybe they don't take it seriously because they don't think you're taking it seriously. Once that heart stops beating, it's hell. And they never get out. When I pastored in Manchester, Tennessee, we had a sweet lady in the church. Her name was Jimmy. Her husband's name was Billy. Now, Billy wasn't saved. He worked at the uh, Wilson Sporting Goods Factory there in Tullahoma. Jimmy, a good member of our church, she got diabetes. And it wasn't too long after that she went blind. She was faithful, faithful to church, sang in the choir. Matter of fact, I led the choir in our church. And uh, what she would do for choir practice, she would bring a little uh, cassette recorder and she would tape or record the choir practice so that when she got home, she could listen to it over and over again so she would know when it would be time for her to sing. And she would practice that and she was always, always ready. As a matter of fact, she was concerned about souls. She would go out soul winning all the time before she went blind. After she went blind, what she would do is she would go in and sit down at the phone. And if I remember right, the Manchester Exchange was 721. So she would, you know, feel it with her fingers and dial 721 and then just make up four numbers. And whoever answered the phone, she'd talk to him about the Lord. That's what she did. One night, we got a call about 10 o'clock from Jimmy's daughter. And she said, Preacher, my daddy's had a heart attack. They've taken him to the hospital there in Manchester. And I said, that's all right. My wife and I will be up in a moment. Uh, let's get up, get dressed, and we'll be down there. So we got around. We drove down as fast as we could down to the hospital there in Manchester. And I'll never forget walking in the door of the emergency room. There was Jimmy seated against the wall, and obviously she couldn't see us, so I said, Jimmy, it's Pastor and Jan, and uh, she said, oh, preacher, oh, preacher, Billy's in hell. Billy's in hell. Well, what could I say to her? That was the truth. And he's still there today, too. That rich man Jesus talked about, he's still there today too. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night. If hell is real, and it is, some mothers, some fathers, some husbands, some wives, some sons, some daughters, some aunts, some cousins, some uncles, that dear neighbor down the street, that kind old man who's been a friend of the family for years. The moment their heart stops beating, like the rich man, they're going to open up their eyes in hell. And there'll be no escape. That 14-year-old neighbor boy that got hit by a car, died, that 23-year-old young man, killed by accident, doesn't make any difference, they're in hell. 
You see, it is real. And because it's real, we as believers need to start living like it's real. I mean, who's going to understand the awfulness of hell if we kind of push it back out of our minds and we don't want to think about it? Are you really a good neighbor to let them go to hell without a warning? Are you really a good citizen to let the people of your town go to hell without doing all you can to warn them? They need Christ. Christ is their only hope. Are we really good Christians if we just give a token amount to missions? I mean, there are billions around the world that we'll never hear if the missionaries don't get there. They rely on that giving. They've given their life to spread the gospel to people who've never heard. But they've got to get enough in order to get there so that they can do what God's called them to do. Hell is real. I'm going to tell you what. That's one of the reasons why, especially as I get older, I just don't have a whole lot of time for complainers and gossipers and the Facebook crowd who gets on there and complains about their pastor, complains about their deacons, complains about the deacons, about the the. The church, people that wouldn't shake their hand. I I don't have any time for that nonsense. People are dying and going to hell. What on earth are we doing worried about whether or not somebody shook our hand? Or whether or not the pastor had a big smile on his face when he saw us at the grocery store? What on earth is wrong with us? See, we're not playing. We're not playing because hell is real. Listen to John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world, that's what we like to major on. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why did he give his son? So that we who are perishing could have life. And Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Someone may say, well, preacher, come on, it's not that big a deal. Tell that to Jesus. That's why he went to the cross. I dare you to tell it to my grandpa. Tell it to that sweet Christian Jimmy whose husband died suddenly in the night with a heart attack and went to hell. Yes, hell is real. What are we going to do about keeping people from going there? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.